All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the ADOS podcast. I'm your host, Christian. I'm Elijah. And uh, you're tuned in and you're locked in to the ADOS podcast. We have an amazing guest for you guys today. But before we get into that, we just want to talk a little bit about what's been happening over the last week. Um, the deadly shooting in Atlanta. I am disgusted and I have strong feelings about the whole situation, and my heart goes out to the family of the people who were lost. Elijah, yeah, uh, what what happened to uh, what happened in Atlanta is just a reflection of a, a much broader issue that we have right now in our country, which is gun violence in general, domestic terrorism in general, uh, mental health that's still not being addressed, and you know, white supremacy. I'm just gonna call it out for what it is. That's what it is. And we need to get to the point as a community. And when I say community, I don't just mean Twin Cities. I just don't mean Minnesota. I mean, as a human race, as a group of people where we can start having these conversations uh, about why, you know, we accept these types of things and continue to allow these types of things to happen in our society. I mean, what happened in Atlanta was egregious, man. Eight people lost their lives for just working for doing what they do, trying to make a living. And someone came into these massage parlors and took their lives for no apparent reason. I mean, I know you mentioned earlier that the guy said he had some mental health issues going on and he was a sex addict and all these other excuses, but that's not a reason to justify going to go kill somebody. Eight people at that. Yeah, and and the way I see it, and I see all over social media right now, you know, it's stop Asian hate crimes and stop Asian you know, hate. And I'm, I'm a supporter of that. I agree. And one thing that uh, I came out publicly said is it's not just about the Asian hate crime. I don't want it to, to diverse. I don't want that issue to be diverse in which our communities can't unite for the same cause. Crime is crime. And what we witness, what we all witness is disgusting. And that BS excuse that that person gave is not a real reason to do anything, you know, is it, it's weird for for people to hypersexualize and then cause acts of terrorism mm-hmm. to get a message across because you're feeling this type of way about your sexuality and about you feeling like you're not like you're not acknowledged, you know, and it's it's very sickening. And, and, you know, also I, I have friends who are part of the Asian community. Mostly, most of them are Hmong. You know, I've lived in St. Paul a long time and, mm-hmm. you know, I have a lot of Hmong friends and we're actually having a conversation and, you know, we, we, we all agree that it's sad that something like this had to happen for even Asian folks to want to step up and start talking about white supremacy. And I know that's controversial and stuff like that, but it is the ADOS podcast and it wouldn't be if Elijah didn't say something controversial, right? Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, we, this is a prime opportunity for minority groups. And I hate using that term minority. It literally just makes me cringe when I just said that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, underrepresented people of all different walks of life need to come together and fight against this cancer that we have, which is white supremacy. And, you know, the thing about cancer is if you don't cut it off right away, it's just going to spread all over. And that's what we've been saying in this country right now. If we don't cut this cancer th- right at the source and eliminate it, it's going to spread throughout our entire country. And we're saying that right now. So um, it's unfortunate that something like this had to happen to bring our Asian brothers and sisters in on this conversation about racial equity. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we're going to continue to have these good conversations. I want to hopefully lead some of these conversations. And I want all underrepresented people to be at the table when we start talking about racial equity and trying to put a stop to white supremacy. But at the also on the other side of this is it shouldn't always have to be the responsibility of black folks, Asian folks, Latino folks, Latina folks Mm -hmm. to end white supremacy. White supremacy is a white people's problem. And, and, And I was on a call last night with a senator from Duluth, Minnesota. I won't say her name. Y'all know what I'm talking about. (laughs) And she said it so perfectly. She's like, the responsibility shouldn't have to be on people of color to end white supremacy. The responsibility is on us. White supremacy is a white people issue. So when our white people, right, our allies going to actually step up and call this stuff out for what it is and hold their neighbors, hold their family members, hold their friends accountable. That's what's really going to start that change when white people no longer accept this type of behavior. And that's that's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah, that's I think, 
you you said that so beautifully and i i really don't have much to add to that except we it sh- it shouldn't take these moments for us to get together um there's someone that i follow who i admire in the city of apple valley who who you know is an asian woman and she said it best she said now is the time for us to look even and and I know it was so difficult for her to do and I admire that she did it and I even shared it on my Facebook page but because the issue is so sensitive right now mm-hmm. she really addressed like us in the Asian community mm-hmm. we have to stop ignoring some of the black issues as well mm-hmm. you know because we have to stand with them in their moments of need the same way that they stand with us in our moments of need. Mm-hmm. And this is that time. This is that moment. So uh, shout out to you. You know who I'm talking to. Shout out to you for um, saying that so beautifully. And um, this world, this world needs help. You know, it is a cancerous environment that we live in. And the real, the real cancer is white supremacy, white superiority, and white terrorism. And I'm a t- and I don't want to drag this conversation on, you know, longer than we already have because we do have a, a guest on the show and I want to be respectful of their time. But the thing about white supremacy is uh, it would no longer survive if all the groups that they're that, that they believe they're superior over well that they're came oppressing. together, that they're oppressing actually they're came oppressing. together. So mm-hmm. it's not not only does these conversations need to happen. They have to happen if we really want to band together and, and create some actual monumental changes in our communities. And again, community is broad, mm-hmm. right? If we want to change the trajectory in which our nation is on, these conversations between the Asian community and the black community and the black community and the African immigrant community needs to happen. There can no longer be this divisiveness between our groups of people. Even when in the own black community, we can no longer have this divisiveness there. A disconnect. We cannot be disconnected. You know, I say it best all the time, and we're going to get into our guests after this. I have to drop it after this. But we cannot fight oppressors and fight ourselves, Mm. as well as other minority. Well, I'm not going to use as well as other groups. We can't. We just can't do it because it doesn't work. You know, it's been proven. That's what our history is. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, like our guest mentioned last week, it doesn't take one person. It takes a group. It takes a village. It takes a collective. Yeah. And that being said... um, we're going to get into our guests. And uh, I'm really excited about our guest today. Uh, before we get into that, just a quick update on the Biden administration. So there is a, a college relief bill in place, and that's going to Congress, and an additional bill for $10,000 off of student tuition. So big changes happening up there at the federal level. And I, uh, I know y'all saw Biden fall, though. <laughs> <laughs> We, we talk about a lot of serious stuff for the 8 Hours podcast. I got to remind myself to insert some comedy in there. I know y'all saw Biden fall. If you haven't, go on TikTok, type in Biden falls and watch it. And make sure you got nothing hot in your hand because you might drop it because it's funny. <laughs> all right. All right. Let's let's get into it. So. Um, viewers and listeners, this next guest is a very special person to me, a very special person to the community, a very special person to the children that she teach. This is my queen, my soulmate, my fiance, uh, soon to be teacher of the year, Amari Brown. Hi. (laughs) Thank you for the introduction. I appreciate it. You're welcome. You have any opening words for us? You know, I just, um... After listening to what you guys were just saying, what you said that stuck with me, Christian, was just that um, it takes these moments for people to realize that something is wrong. And just what I have noticed is that, yes, it does take these moments and I feel like it ignites a fire in people and they're upset about it and everything. But then the fire goes away and people go back to their normal lives. And then it takes another moment to happen for people to be like, this is wrong. And then we it's the, it's a pattern. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we never... Um, get out of this pattern. And yes, there are people that keep working between these moments. You know what I mean? That keep working, keep trying to stop the oppression on these groups of people that are minorities, but the majority of people just stop um, until something big happens again. And I think we just need to continue the cycle. What's next? We're surprised. How are we changing it? The moments have to stop. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. yeah, because the the moments, they're not just moments. They're actually, it's too late. 
when moments happen, it's too late. I mean, they're tragedies. Yeah. You know, blood is shed and lives are lost. So, yeah, thank you. Uh, but to, to that point, and I'm mm-hmm. glad you mentioned it, I think we become desensitized to some of these types of things. Oh, a mass shooting, eight people. And, you know, I'm not trying to make light of the situation. I, I feel I, I heard I heard about an old lady. I think she was in her 60s or 70s. Elder. She got stabbed up. An elder that. woman, an elder woman got stabbed up at a bus stop right here in Minneapolis last week. That ruined my whole day because I just kept thinking about my grandmother. Mm-hmm. And it's like most people probably saw the article that I reposted and went right past it. They probably saw the article about eight people dying in a massage parlor and went right past it. You've, you've become desensitized to this type of violence in our community. I think that's also a huge issue. It's like we accept the violence. And like you said, you know, one event happens, everyone says, oh, that was wrong. That was such a terrible thing. All right. Go back to work. Mm-hmm. Go back to dealing with my kids. Mm-hmm. Go back to do- dealing with my life. Mm-hmm. When are we going to get to that point where we really say, you know what? No, I'm not going back to my work. Right. No, I'm not going to go off with my day until we seriously sit down and address this and hold our systems accountable. Mm-hmm. It should not be more surprising that people are doing the work to stop it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know why that that surprises me more to see organizations come up and movements come up and people are raising money, fundraisers for this and this to stop whatever the issue is. That surprises me more than to see the news, you know, about people being mass murdered and things like that. George Floyd, all of that. Why is that less surprising to me than people doing the work to stop it? Desensitized is the word. Wow. Yeah, yeah it's um, we. We, we are definitely in our feelings right now because we're, we're sick, we're, we're tired, and a lot of people out there are losing hope. And I think that's where the desensitization come in, where, you know, people view deaths and early, I w- I'm going to say premature deaths and murders, premature deaths and murders. Um, they, they just view it as a normal thing. You know, as as something that happens. And although we all acknowledge it's inevitable, if it's premature, it should not be that way. And it's not even when it comes to violence. Like, I feel like people are, are losing hope in a lot of institutions in our country. Right. Education system. Right. We have Mari on the show. You're a middle school teacher, Spanish teacher, black woman. I want to hear a little bit about your experience in the education system. I have a few questions I want to ask, um, but I think that's another institution where a lot of folks are losing hope in because we're not seeing the outcomes. We're not seeing our kids, and I don't want to use the word smarter, but we, we not, we're not seeing our kids really advancing the way that they should be, especially when it comes to our black and brown kids, specifically our black kids, ADOS podcast, mm-hmm. ADOS kids. Yeah. I mean, you want my experience? Oh, yeah. Let's start with your experience first. Um. So, I mean, as a student, I grew up in Apple Valley, Minnesota, um, did K through 12 education and District 196 schools. It encompasses three cities, Egan, Apple Valley, and Rosemount. And I did K-12 there. And probably K through like seventh grade, I was usually the only student of color or one of few in my classes. And it wasn't until mostly high school, um, but a little bit in eighth grade, where I was not the only one. And that was nice. You know what I mean? But Apple Valley where I grew up is predominantly white. And so my teachers were, I had one teacher of color and it was second grade. And I hate that because I, like, I loved her, but I was seven and I was way too young to appreciate just the fact that she was a black female teacher that I had. Um, But I loved her, absolutely adored her. I just wish I appreciated her a little bit more. But it wasn't until high school that I had, you know, colleagues and classmates of color Um, And that is one of many things that made me want to be a teacher in the first place, just because students need to see male or female. They need to see people that look like them in leadership Mm -hmm. to believe that this is something that they can do as well. Okay, so um, going into college, that was very diverse as well. I went to St. Kate's and St. Paul for my undergrad. Um, It took five years. Lots of people of color. I was one of two. Um, people though, women to graduate with a double major in K-12 education in Spanish. It was only two of us. 
And um, the other one is my maid of honor. So shout out to her. You know who you are. Um, <laughs> maid of but, honor? What? Yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. What? Okay. <laughs> okay. So she's my maid of honor. and But we were both K-12 Spanish education. That's also something that's not as popular anymore is Spanish teachers. And so... Um, but lots of diversity there. It's college, right? People come from all over the world to do that. And then I'm currently in a master's program as well. And I am one of three, like I'm in a cohort. So there's 10 of mm -hmm. us and I'm one of three, but I've always just wanted to continue education because the kids in the classrooms don't stay the same and they have different experiences and different family lives and that grows. And I believe that teachers need to grow along with that. So part of getting better is continuing to educate myself. And so mm -hmm. that's what I have um, continued to do. So I currently teach in Lakeville at a middle school. There are three middle schools. I teach at one of them, eighth grade Spanish. I am the only black teacher in the building. And I recently found out like within the last two weeks that I am one of five black members of the district. Of the so, entire district. Of the entire district. That you said expands across three cities. Oh, no, no. That's where I grew up. Oh, that's where you grew La up. Lakeville oh, is I was just, say, yeah. wait a minute. No, I, it, but this is still set. I mean, Lakeville is one, it's just one city. Okay. I, it's still new to me, but I want to say we have like 11,000 students across the whole district, you know, mm -hmm. but it's like a couple high schools. It's like eight elementary schools, three middle schools, and two high schools, I believe. It's kind of, it's way smaller mm -hmm. than Egan Apple Valley Rosemount, but still one of five. And I'm the only teacher out of the five. Another one works for the equity department. And the other three are, they work with like in the lunchroom, custodial, things like that. So, so we, you're their only teacher. Yeah. And not to mention, but you're 24. I am 24. You know, so it's like, yeah. Wow. You know, it, I couldn't imagine being an eighth grade student and my teacher was 24. And yeah, they don't, they probably don't know how old you are, but I couldn't imagine having you know, a, a black woman as my Spanish teacher who's close to me in age. Like, there's more than just a, you teaching me. There's a, you could relate to me mm -hmm. versus someone who's a little bit elder versus someone who doesn't, um, you know, look like me. So that that is powerful. Yeah, no, they know how old I am. I, <laughs> I told them on the first day and it, they that was something that they asked too. But the first week of school is like a culture week. It's like mm -hmm. a get to know you mm -hmm. week. I don't start any instruction. I just want to know who you are and I want to know what I can do for you, right? Because my class is a high school credit class. So I teach eighth grade Spanish one, but this is a class that's offered at the high school level for ninth graders. So if my kids pass upon successful mm. completion, they can go to level two mm -hmm. with 10th graders as ninth graders. It's a big deal. So, but like, I really want to know how I can help them study wow. habits. What do you want to see from your teachers? What do you not like that your teachers do? Because I care about that. I've also only been teaching for two years. Not only, I have been teaching for two years. So there's still a lot to learn compared to teachers that have been doing this for the length of my life. But yeah, the first week of school is culture week. Um, what's your family like? What do you want to get out of this class? What do you want to learn about? Um, cause I try to make it applicable, right? Like I'm teaching Spanish and that's great, but like these kids are going to go to Mexico on their spring break and they're going to go to Guatemala on this day in the summer. And like they travel and they want to use their Spanish. They want to have conversations. It's more than just the vocab. A lot of them are playing sports, so I try to teach things that are relevant to what they're doing so mm -hmm. that they can use it and have conversations and feel good about it. Mm -hmm. But they do know how old I am. We talk <laughs> about it. We joke about it. I have a brother that's an eighth grader, their same age, and they that blows their mind. <laughs> but like, I just, I need them to know that there's only, it's 10 years between us. Like I, every trick you are about to do this year, I have done it. <laughs> I have tried it. I have been there. Okay, I'm looking at the camera. I have been there. But, um, <laughs> But it's helpful that they know that, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Because I, I always felt a huge disconnect from the teachers that were like in my life that I've had that were way, even it's mostly in college, the teachers that were like way older trying to teach about history, right? It's something that's like ever changing. It's like, I can't even hear you right now. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I need someone that is more in this time. Like we need younger teachers, I believe, um, in our schools. Well, let's talk about the percentage of black teachers mm -hmm. Right now in the country. Uh, Michael, can you, can you turn my screen to my statistics? Thank you. Y'all know I love statistics. Uh, you gotta love the numbers. <laughs> so if you look at the green bar, that's the year is 1999 to 2000. You can see there was 84% white teachers. This is in the country. 
Um, you can see there was 8% black teachers at the time between 1999 and 2000. Um, I assume that that number was higher if we go back probably 10, 20 years, but that's another conversation. <clears throat> uh, Hispanic, 6% in 1999, 2000, that number increased by 3% to 9%. The category for Asian teachers increased by 2%. Um, American Indian, Alaska Native, 1%. And two of my races, 2%. Uh, the category for black teachers experienced a decrease um, when we fast forward to 2017, 2018. 7% black teachers in the country. And this is a field that's already dominated by women. So I'm assuming that with that 84%, a majority of that for, for white people is white women mm -hmm. teaching in the schools. And I'm, I'm just going to assume that that 7% that we have for our black teachers is probably female teachers because it's a female dominated industry. Uh, and you just mentioned to us that you're the you're one teacher out of five black people in your district, right? right? Mm-hmm. How has that had an impact on how you address your job and how you just go about your day knowing that it's just not many people that look like you in the classroom or amongst your peers and your colleagues? I That is a good question. <laughs> I feel like I wear a lot of faces. Mm. Um, yeah, I feel like. Um, I have felt welcomed. This is my first year in the district and I have felt welcomed and loved, you know what I mean? But there is just something about leaving at the end of the day or walking in at the beginning of the day, knowing that you are the only one. And that if something happens related to race or what I look like, that nobody in that building can sympathize with me. Um, or understand where I'm, you know what I mean? They can sit and they can pat my back and rub my shoulder, but they will never get it. Um, and that's hard. That is really hard. So like I said, I feel like I wear a lot of faces um, just to keep up, keep the job, you know what I mean? Which is, that's just how it is. Um, but, you know, it has made me, it has definitely made me be more vocal um, as far as trying to educate my colleagues and even my students, because most of my students are, my student population is predominantly white as well. Um, and it's a high school credit class. So what they're doing counts. And so I don't really see a lot of students of color in this course, unfortunately. So um, I just, I use it. It's my platform to educate when something's wrong. I'm stopping what I'm hearing. I'm, you know, echoing what I'm hearing them saying. And then I'm questioning why is this coming out of your mouth right now? Why is this happening? And then I'm educating because most of the time they have no idea. So. Yeah. And um, I'm going to take a little dip into, because uh, I remember one conversation we had at the house one time where you and I slightly disagreed, but we were for the most part in agreement. And I know that uh, it was versus like, you know, the amount of impact that you have on a learner in school versus the impact that the family has at home. Mm. And uh, yeah, so we, in our household, we have some some nice conversations. You know, she makes me better and hopefully I do the same. But to go back to that, the reason why we talked about that, uh, I forgot what situation had happened. But I remember you saying me as an educator, I have this amount of control and influence to them. And then once they go home, their parents and their family has, you know, just as much, if not more impact that you have. And I think it depends on the person overall. But I remember saying that um, no matter what our educators do, what happens in that household, kids are going to tend to gravitate towards that type of thinking, that type of learning, that type of environment. You know, because that's what they get the majority of, you know, and you, your classes are probably what, 45 minutes to an hour ish, mm -hmm. 46 minutes, 46 minutes. And then what is your that's student population? Number. How many? What'd you say? <laughs> so that's an odd number. It's actually no, 40, an even number, four, but it's an even number. <laughs> but, 46 minutes. What'd you say? Yeah. So I was, I was asking, um, you know, what, how many students do you see a day? My lowest is 20 students and my highest is 37. Okay. And then how many 
periods do you teach a day? Um, so regular teachers teach five and then there's, okay, there's eight periods in a day. So 1.0 or full-time teachers mm -hmm. teach five sections of whatever their class is. They get a prep. They have an hour to meet with teams because teachers are on teams. Mm -hmm. So they have an hour to do that. And then their lunch, their homeroom advisory and their lunchtime. I am a 1.2. So I teach six classes a day, which wow. means I forfeit that team meeting time. So we can get into that, but that's another, I feel disconnected sometimes mm -hmm. from teachers because that's the time that you meet and talk about the students that are on that team under us. Mm -hmm. And I don't get that because I teach an extra section of Spanish. So I teach the six classes. I have a prep, so that's seven. And then I have a homeroom and my lunchtime. So that's my eight. Right. And I, and, and the reason why I ask that information is because if we do that teaching and that 46 minute ratio, what they learn at home is definitely important because it influences how they treat you as an educator. It influences how they treat their peers in the classroom. And you said they like to travel during spring break and summer and how they treat others who they meet. So, um, can I challenge you? Yeah, challenge. Okay. And, I, and I, okay. I have a rebuttal too. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. We might have the same thought. Yeah. Okay. So I do remember this conversation that we had and it, it is hard because Take you're you're teaching and but you are compete like what they hear from me in the eight hour school day is great. It's important. But when you go home, what you're hearing is what you have heard your whole life. Mm -hmm. But where I'm going to rebuttal Christian is at some point they will be adults. And at some point they will be able to make a decision and choose what is right mm -hmm. and what they want to believe for themselves. And it could whatever the topic, you know what I mean? Whatever it is race, politics, what they're eating that day. Okay. You know, you could hear it at home your whole life, but at one point in time, you are going to be old enough to say, I don't have to follow this mm -hmm. and I can go this way. And that is what I'm trying to teach. It, at the, it's not even about, at the end of the day, mm -hmm. it's not even about Spanish. Mm -hmm. Like it's not, it's about the connection. And can you make your own decisions? And like what, I, who I'm right, like who I'm teaching in my classroom I want to be future city councilmen and I want them to be firefighters and police officers. Like these are people that are going to run this world mm -hmm. after they graduate. Right. And I honestly could care less about the Spanish. It's about how do you treat people mm -hmm. and how do you make these decisions? How do you move forward? Do you consider other people when you make your decisions? You know, I like that's where I'm at. So that's my rebuttal. Yeah, they, no problem. I, I love it. I love it because I agree with you. And, and let me insert minds, and I agree with you as well, okay. Mari. Let me insert <laughs> minds. I think, Christian, you left out a, a key piece, a, a key component, right? A key mm -hmm. aspect of child development. I'll say child development. It's their peers. Yeah. The people that are sitting next to them while they're in Mari's class. Because, yes, they sit in this classroom. They're getting that education from their teacher, right? Yes, they're going home. They're getting whatever education and advice and feedback and input that they're getting from their parents, right? But I know a lot of these kids that come from these types of suburb environments, right? We, let's tailor it to the, the people that you're working with, right? Come from <laughs> these suburbs. I, I went to school in Wiper Lake. Mm -hmm. A lot of them do have after school activities that go for three, four hours, right? A lot of them do spend weekends in cabins with their friends and their buddies and their families. They do go on vacations with their friends, families. They are always constantly around other people in their community all day, every day. Mm -hmm. Age group too. Right? Yep. And, 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 and their age group. All day, every day. I remember growing up in White, you know, two years, three years in White Bear Lake where we went to school. I was with my peers. Went to basketball practice. I was with my peers. After basketball practice, their parents dropped us off at the, the local community center for a couple hours. We went home. We had dinner. Woke up. Did the same thing again every day. <laughs> and throughout that entire process, who was I with the most? My peers. Not my parents. Not my teachers. The people that sit beside me every day in those classrooms that are on my basketball teams and they have an influence on my life. Mm -hmm. So really, when you're talking to these young people, you're really trying to impact them and the person that's next to them as well to think the same. And hopefully that's positive thinking, not mm -hmm. negative thinking. Right. And we know peers influence each other, man. Mm -hmm. we, we learn we learn more, I feel like, from people who are around our same age group and we're likely to follow behind what we see mm -hmm. and what we're constantly seeing when we're at that age is people 
who are around our age. Yeah. And you're right, because I, I think about when I was an adolescent, you know, there's there's things my parents don't even know that I was into, <laughs> but, friends but my friends do, <laughs> you know. So and I definitely agree with you both. And I think it's it's everything that we're talking about. It's the family. It's the teacher, that individual is giving that support. And it is the peers. And um, one thing I, I do want to bring up. Because I, we need some some type of disagreement here. We're not a true podcast unless we do. And uh, I'm not going to go completely left because for the most part, I do agree with you both. I uh, I think back, I heard something over the weekend where there's this, this guy who was talking about his children. And he was like, yeah, my children are uh, Red Sox fans and they don't like the Yankees. Right. Why do I bring that up? They don't follow baseball, but because of their family just liking the Red Sox and not the Yankees, we hate the Yankees. You know, you see it with different sports teams. And I'm saying that's just something minor. But some of that sticks to people and they're like, well, I'm a diehard fan like this. And then the problem is if someone feels that way about our community, I know the peers help. So if they have peers that they hang out and, you know, psychology, Elijah, people hang out with people who are typically like them in a sense. In a sense. For the most part. For the most part. Yeah. So just just using that, if they have families that's also putting these things into them as well, then we have a bigger issue because it's like no matter what we do in our classrooms, no matter what we do in general, how we try to influence, some people just don't want that change. And I think it goes into the white supremacy we're talking about because right now I'm just talking about strictly racist, white, older people right now. Who wants to hold on to that power and keep that going for generations and generations? And di- diversity-wise, we are getting better as a society, and a lot of them, a lot of them are dying off. But there are some young people who still think that we are cancers and we are diseases, and that's really what I'm getting. I'm gonna at. push back a little bit. Do it. I'm gonna push back you just have a to. little bit. I, I think you're right, mm-hmm. and, and, and I think you're right in that there is. A elder population who do pass down that rhetoric, who do want their their um, <clears throat> their grandkids, their kids to continue to hold on to this concept of white supremacy, this illusion. I call it an illusion of mm-hmm. white supremacy. Because yeah. first off, I'm going to digress really quick and I'm going to come back. First off, in order for white supremacy to even exist, one must acknowledge it. I don't acknowledge it. You know, I, I don't acknowledge it because by saying somebody is by saying white supremacy exists, I'm saying that I am inferior. Right. I'm acknowledging that part mm-hmm. as a black male. Right. I can never say that. That You would never hear those words come in my mouth that I'm inferior to anybody. That's not who we are. That's not who I am. And that's mm-hmm. not who we are. We're not inferior to anybody. So that's why I say it's an illusion of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Right. White people have gotten to the point where they think that they're superior so then guess what? Someone has to be inferior. But if you don't acknowledge that inferior that inferiority, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. It's just an illusion of white supremacy. But back to back to what I was saying, I have to digress quickly. Mm-hmm. There is a, a group of elders in these communities that do want to pass down that message. We've seen it in 2016. We've seen it in this last election, right? Mm-hmm. I see young kids with the Make America Great Again hats and stuff like that, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But also, I believe what what you said, Mari, is they have they're going to get to a point where they have to make their own decisions. That's their decision still. I mm-hmm. don't think you know. There, yes, that influences there still. But there's something inside their hearts that really made them believe that, right? And there's a lot of white kids who come from these racist families who are out there protesting with us, mm-hmm. who are actually allies with us, who actually challenged their families because they made that choice despite growing up in a household where there was open races there. I know people, literally, I have friends that come from open racist Mm -hmm. families, literally openly racist, and they rebuke it to the point where they don't even go around their family anymore because they just can't stand it. They made that conscious decision because they chose to step out their comfort zone. They chose to have conversations with people like us, people from different backgrounds and perspectives where they come from. Mm -hmm. A lot of them do go to college, so they're forced to be in these environments with different people and interact with different folks, and they made a decision. So I think what the real problem is, is exposing people to different types of folks, Mm -hmm. exposing people to different types of realities, forcing people to get out of their comfort zones to have tough conversations. And I think that's how we can really start to shape the future. Right. 
if you grew up in Farmington and all you know is white folks and and, and you never seen a person of color and your family is openly racist, yeah, there's probably a high probability that you're gonna believe that you're superior than other black folks or people of color. Mm-hmm. But if you grew up in Farmington, you grew up around that type of environment and you went to college and you had a roommate who was African American and he was a great person mm-hmm. and you couldn't, you, you, you know, he took you to the parties and he introduced you to his friends and y'all played basketball together. You're slowly starting to break down those barriers that we have. You're opening yourself up more. You're exposing yourself to different people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's going to change it. And I see that happening. Yeah. And uh, it begins with the education. And that's why I'm looking at Mari because <laughs> it is full circle. You know, we we all have the different perspectives on it, but it, it really comes down to how educated one must be. And Mari, I think about a, a time, um, another time, actually, where uh, there was someone who were, you know, they admitted their flaws. And we had dinner with this person, Mari, and they asked us questions, you know, you know what I'm talking about. And they asked us questions like, what she doesn't look like, she knows what I'm talking about. Oh, but I'm struggling. It, okay, as I explain it, it'll okay. come to you. Okay. So, you know, there's a friend of ours whose husband is, you know, he not not as accepting, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going to put the R label on him because mm-hmm. he asks us questions like, you know, tell me what it's like being black or tell me what books could I read? You know, what movies could I watch? What are some of the documentary documentaries that that I could watch so that way I could learn and I could feel some of these things? Because like you mentioned, he wasn't in that environment to to see some of the harm done. He just grew up only seeing this one thing. So when he saw this other thing, he just didn't acknowledge it. You know, he he didn't accept it. But he uh, he definitely asked Mario and I some questions and he was really interested in trying to shift his mindset, you know, and he was older. So I was like, at this point, you know, you're kind <laughs> of there's there's a reality piece. I'm like, at this point, you know, you're kind of that. Mm-hmm. But as you learn to anyone else in your family who, you know, who are coming up. First of all, kids today know things are wrong. They do. They they do know right from wrong better than when we were in school, better than when our parents was in school. I am a believer that today's children are smarter than yesterday. Internet. Mm-hmm. Internet, phones. Yeah, technology. Yeah, information has, at, has at our role. fingertips. Yeah, university, YouTube, right? Right? Yeah. So, um, you know, we... it. It is about the education. And to get back to education, to our guest, Mari, why Spanish? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, you know, okay. All right. So I went to um, St. Kate's with a, actually, I had a chemistry major and couldn't do it. I did like day, I did one day. Actually, no, I didn't even do one day of chemistry class. I actually went to the chemistry club before school started and I couldn't even do that. <laughs> and I, <laughs> and it was nope. devastating. And I, I had this teacher in high school. She knows who she is. She taught me chemistry for two years in high school, 11th and 12th grade. And I just loved it. I loved her class. I love what she taught, the way she taught. And so I was like, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to learn chemistry and I'm going to do that because she did it and she was great at doing it. And like I said, didn't even take the class, got to chemistry club like a week before classes started, couldn't do it. But then I had this like come to Jesus moment where I realized that it was not the subject. Mm -hmm. It was the way she taught me Mm -hmm. that I was trying to find or trying to replicate myself. It was not chemistry at all. It was the way she taught me. It was the fact that it wasn't always um, about what we were learning. It was, how are you today, Mari? And like, what can I do for you? And what do you need? And like everything that I needed from a teacher was her, a friend. It was, it was everything. And I was trying to find that. And so once I dropped that chemistry major, I picked up teaching and it was, then it was just about what do you want to teach? Like, that's the next step. You can just do education, but I knew I didn't want to just, I didn't want to teach like second grade. You know what I mean? Because when you're in grade school or elementary school, you're teaching everything. You're the science teacher, the history teacher, the math teacher. That's not for me. Um, and so I just had to figure out what else am I passionate about? And it was it was Spanish. My mom um, is fluent. 
Um, my siblings, some of my siblings took it after I started taking it in middle school and I'm just passionate about the culture, the food, um, the places, just everything. And so that I was like, that's what I want to teach. And then my, my follow-up question, mm-hmm. how does it feel to be a young black Spanish teacher? That's got to be a lot of pressure on you, especially in the district you work. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of pressure, not because of what I'm teaching, but more just age is a big thing. Like people that get into education typically like pre-COVID don't leave like people stay. And so I'm working next to people that have been teaching the length of my life and more. And that's intimidating because I'm coming in with these new, and let me rephrase, that's intimidating for them, not for me, intimidating Mm -hmm. for them because I'm coming in with new ideas Mm -hmm. and fresh perspectives Mm -hmm. and new ways of teaching that like they have never heard of, right? So that is intimidating for them. For me, it's intimidating just, I I have something to prove, right? I have to prove that I'm good enough to be here, but I am because I got the job, right? But like you have (laughs) to prove, you know, it's a matter Mm -hmm. of, prove not to my admin anymore because they hired me now it's about proving to these colleagues mm-hmm. you know that i can do this job do you ever so. get the question like are you really fluent in spanish like I, anyway, has anyone ever asked you that like sometimes. talk about conferences like obviously i'm here <laughs> talk about <Duh>. conferences, conferences. <laughs> well con- okay i've gotten that sometimes i have never traveled okay i've never left the country so the Spanish that I have learned began in sixth grade. I started taking it. That's when you can take it in Apple Valley, sixth grade. Well, now it's seventh grade, but sixth grade at the time. And I took it sixth grade through graduating. So that's six years. And I took it all five years of college. So 11 years of Spanish. And I feel like I still have a lot to learn. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot to learn. And now the language is beginning to find ways to adopt um like gender inclusive pronouns. Like right now, Spanish is very like masculine, feminine. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying, they're trying to find a middle ground. And so like, for example, most Spanish nouns will end in A or O, mm-hmm. right? And now there's a, we're working on it, trying to learn, teach it ourselves. And the language itself has to adopt that for us to be able to teach it. But the letter E would be the gender neutral term for mm. some nouns. So anyway, always about learning more, but... God, what did you ask me? I went off on a tangent. I can't remember what you asked me. <laughs> no, I just actually have, has anyone ever questioned, you know, your expertise? Oh, my abilities. Yeah, your abilities Sometimes. your expertise. Sometimes. I know I get that a lot as a young person. Like, are you really in graduate school? Like, dude, you want to see my transcripts? Right, yeah. <laughs> some, sometimes, yes. And I, Christian brought up conferences. Conferences were all digital. So, like, mm-hmm. we started the school year in person. We made it to the week before Thanksgiving. And now on Monday, like, in two days, we're finally going back fully in person. But so conferences had to be conducted online. I have never met, it's my first year in the district, never met some of these parents before. So, and we're meeting like over a Zoom Mm -hmm. call. They come on, hi, we're here for the Spanish teacher. Hi. (laughs) I'm the Spanish teacher. Here she is, me. I am the Spanish teacher. And they're like, oh my God, really? You know, they're usually surprised. It's either like, you're so young or obviously I'm not, I know I'm not what you expected, you know? So they're just, you know, they get surprised, but then we have a conversation and it's, it's fine, you know? But yes. And and, and I'll just, I'll, I'll say this is, you know, candidly. They probably was expecting an older, um, you know, Hispanic type of woman to, mm-hmm. to come on there. To be or honest a white with woman, you, or, yeah. or a white woman, to be honest, you yep. know, um, who's traveled all over and lived in Spain and lived in Mexico and all these things. They're definitely not expecting a young black woman to pop up on there and be their child Spanish teacher. No. Yeah, because you could be their sibling. <laughs> I could yeah. be their child. A, a lot of them will. A lot of the, my kids' parents have kids my age. And have anyone ever said that to you? They have said that to me. Yes. Because I I had one parent get on. How old are you? And I just I said, I'm 24. And he's like, oh, my gosh, I have a 26 year old daughter. And I was like, well, (laughs) you know, I'm here. You know, it's just like we let's get back to your child's birth. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Enough about me, your child. Um, But yeah, I get it. I get it a lot. And I taught in last year. I taught in St. Louis Park. Way different from Lakeville. But I taught in St. Louis Park. And I was a specialist. I was in elementary school. So I actually have a K-12 education teaching license. So I could teach any grade K-12. So this last year I taught K-5. I had every student in the elementary school. So almost 600 students. 
and I was teaching 10 classes a day. And the diversity in St. Louis Park is something that I miss. That was like so diverse to the point where like I had a racial equity coach. Like it was like when they first told me you're going to have a racial equity coach, I was like, me? Like I need a racial equity (laughs) coach? And they were like, "Everyone everyone gets one. And so, yeah, I had a coach that was helping me like just stuff teachers don't think about, like implicit biases and things like that. Like when kids raise their hand, who am I calling on mm. first? You know, am I calling on my white kids because they're going to know the answer? Or am I calling on my kids of color? Like, who am I calling on? And like, am I recognizing and f- coming face to face with the implicit biases that I have as a teacher? You know what I mean? And so that I miss that. Like we have coaches in Lakeville, but it's not racially focused. Mm-hmm. It's just like. Um, generally, like, are you doing well? What do you need? How can I support you? Kind of focus. But do you think it, their approach is more reactive and St. Louis Parks is more proactive? Would you say, go that far to say that? And reactive meaning, oh, if something happened and it's a racial issue, we have someone in place to address it versus we're going to train people so these things don't happen in the classroom in the first place. Um, I think same, I mean, I think they're both proactive, but I think it's in different way. It's to what their city needs and what their district needs, Mm -hmm. you know, like, I I mean, when I was teaching in St. Louis park, when George Floyd was murdered and I'm teaching, I'm teaching kindergartners who like, you know, and then we were online at that point because COVID had like kind of just started. It only been a couple months. So we were fully online, but I would have kindergartners come onto my class and be like, I don't want to talk about Spanish right now, Miss Brown. Like, can we talk about George Floyd? And like, there was this, really? there, yeah, and there was the space for that. And St. Louis Park allowed did not have an issue with space for that being created. Whereas I feel like, you know, currently where I'm at, it there's got there's a few more steps. Like, I can't just freely, mm-hmm. I can't not. And now this is a high school credit class. Like the the kids have to get the Spanish, you know, but it's it's just different. It's just different. I ha- It's a few more hoops I got to get through to be able to have a conversation freely about George Floyd for 46 minutes. Mm-hmm. But like last year with five-year-olds yeah. who like, I just have to say that like this generation of kids is like amazing. Like they are the most understanding group of kids. Like there is nothing that phases these kids at all. Like I am in awe of my siblings, of my students, of kids younger than my students daily. Like mm-hmm. there is no judgment ever. I could walk in and say, I'm purple and I'm this today. And they're okay. <laughs> they're, they're good. Like, what do you need? Like, there's no judgment at all. And I just, that's why I get so excited about teaching. Cause like, that is who I want leading whatever I'm trying to do after I retire. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's who I want to run this world after that is this generation of kids. And I'll echo that. I'm the oldest of nine. My youngest sibling actually is a month old now, officially. Wow. Almost a month old. My stepmom just had him. Yeah. Um, but the next is five, and the next after that is eight, and I have an 11-year-old sister, and all of them are smart. I mean, especially Antonio, my eight-year-old brother. He also goes to a Spanish emergent school. Cool. Uh, bright. Bright. I mean, vocabulary. He can elaborate on his sentences. I mean, have full-blown conversations with you. It's like I'm talking to one of my peers, you know, bright. So I definitely echo you when you say this next generation that's coming up, like these younger kids, mm-hmm. they're going to be great. Yeah, yeah they, they are definitely <laughs> built different. They're yeah. built different. They're because- so insightful. And, like, just the questions that they, like, they see things I don't, I don't think of. Like, this is a five-year-old. Right. And I'm almost five times their age. And they're we're just having for 30 minutes a conversation about George Floyd. And it's just, what do you think this happened this way, Miss Brown? And like, just to ask you, you know, and we could be honest and we could talk about it. And like, it was fine, you know, and then I'm going to, you know, then I flip the question and ask, so how can we make the community better? What can we do? Because they're five. What can we do mm-hmm. to move on? Even my fifth grade girls, it was just like they would tell me this is unacceptable, Miss Brown. What are we doing to change this? You know, like they just they want to see change and they want to see equality and they care about that more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And I just I cannot wait to see the next thing. Like I want these kids teaching my kids like that is mm-hmm. I don't even have kids like they <laughs> are. That is how amazing this generation is. So I'm excited. 
to see what's next. I, I say we end on that that um uh, you know optimism right there, that opt- uh, optimistic note. Because I am too. I'm looking forward to that. I think that gives yeah. me hope. That gives me the energy to get up every day and to keep fighting and to keep going, knowing that I'm paving the way for the next group of kids to come behind me and do some more change. Because mm-hmm. we're not going to be able to tear down these systems overnight, certainly not in our generation, but we got to keep chipping away at it. Yeah. And let these young kids come up behind us, leave them behind whatever resources and tools that we have to continue to build up this utopia that we want to live in. We can yeah. have it. And and you're right. We will have it. We we will have we it. We will have it. You know, if if we have people like us who are continuously building and bridging some of yeah. those gaps that we have, mm-hmm. we will have that that mm-hmm. sense of community again. You know, yeah. our Black Wall Street again. Mm-hmm. We'll have that, and it it'll be more sustainable and powerful than ever. And um, before we have before we end, I would say you are a powerful, amazing, beautiful. Black sister with an A, not an ER. <laughs> and a. Um, you know, I'm I'm happy. I'm happy to be engaged to you because you make me better. You make me stronger. You know what they say, though, cliche behind every strong black band, there's an even more stronger, faster, smarter black woman. And uh you guys shared that with us today. And Elijah, thank you for I was just here. Yeah, no, you weren't here. Here, 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 here so I don't get fined. (laughs) I'm just here so I don't get fined. Pulled a Marshawn Lynch, but no. um, You know, we need these these spaces. And I know Elijah and I have been in conversation about having, Mm -hmm. you know, our future leaders, our children on the podcast. Yeah, we will. We will. Talking to them to see how insightful, how developed, and how confident they are within themselves as well as whatever it is they're doing. And um, it's uh, it's amazing. We we're, we're gonna have to have a part two because we didn't get into the professional development of the education. Oh, yeah. We didn't really get into you know Mari's transition from in person to digital back to in person. So we have to have a follow up. And um, I'm looking forward to having you. The disgusting Minnesota state disparities. I said we were going in on an optimistic note, but Minnesota <laughs> has some of the worst disparities when it comes to educating our ADOS kids. I got to tell y'all that, and I'm going to continue to say, uh, tell y'all that. We have to hold the education system here in Minnesota accountable. Seriously, uh, things have to change. We can no longer have 33% of black kids you know, at the proficient level for reading and 46% of black kids at the proficient level for math when their counterparts are at that 75, 80 percentile. We cannot have that. That's not going to help our people advance. And we have to address those things and call them out for what they are. It is levels yeah. to this. Education has different levels. You know, I think it's from my, my definition. People ask me, it's like, OK, what is education? I'm like from pre-K to careers. You know, it's a lifelong learning process. You can be educated in so many ways. I am a believer that education creates experience and experience creates experts. Mm -hmm. So um, you know where you are. Stay at Oz Podcast. Thank you, Mari. Thank you. Thank you, Mari. I appreciate you. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, ADOS Podcast. Follow us on Instagram at the ADOS Podcast. We still got to get that Twitter up and running. Christian, hold me accountable on getting that Twitter up and running. I got you, Podcast. And you got to tweet because I'm going to go too far. I don't know how to tweet. (laughs) And and please uh, follow our Facebook page for content that we release every week on Thursday. Thank you all for supporting ADOS Podcast. Thank you, Mari. Thank you, Christian. I appreciate y'all. Peace. Love. Thank you.